Hello, folks, and uh, welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here today as we broadcast live from uh, Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. All right, so later in the program, uh, we'll be talking about uh, the dire climate condition in the Arctic. We'll also be talking with some young, uh, young, young adults here in Des Moines who have been working on the uh, gun violence issue in tandem with the the uh, momentum that's been generated by the horrific uh, shooting at the school in Parkland. But first, I, I want to there, – there's, um, there's been some interesting things happening in the courts relevant to climate change. And we have three guests calling into this program this morning from around the country who have been on the front lines of that battle. And the first to join us is uh, Leonard Higgins. Uh, Leonard, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ed. Glad to be here. Yeah, and uh, you're, you're, you're one of uh, five people who are known as valve turners. This is a new term. This is uh, in, re- in reference to a coordinated effort to shut off uh, oil flowing from the tar sands. Uh, this action was back in, I believe, in, in 2016. And uh, the various trials of you and the other valve turners have worked through the process and uh, some surprising results. Uh, well, maybe surprising, at least to those of us who uh, have been involved with similar protests and seen very different results. Again, not uh, not not uniformly uh, uh, consistent across the board. Um, but uh, I do also want to talk about at some point the um, the re- the ruling last week in in uh, in Massachusetts relevant to an action by thirteen pipeline fighters there, including the uh, daughter of uh, Al Gore. That led to, I think, a very encouraging admission by the court that there is a climate emergency and the types of actions engaged in by those pipeline fighters and by you and others uh, is justified. But let's um, let's go back to the beginning of, of your situation, Leonard. Uh, tell us again. Some in the audience might not be familiar with the details, so tell us a bit more about what you did and when and why. So, uh, yes, October before last, uh, of 2016, uh, the five of us in, uh, after months of planning, coordinated effort, shut down all five of the tar sands pipelines, bringing tar sands crude from Alberta, Canada into the U.S. It was across four states, um, in Minnesota, uh, North Dakota, Montana, and Washington. And over the course of an hour at uh, 15-minute intervals, we called the pipeline companies, asking them to, according to their emergency protocol, shut down the pumping station, stop the flow of the oil. And then in uh, a partly symbolic, partly um, physically um, effective, um, stop the flow of the tar sands pipeline, tar sands uh, crude oil for about a day on October 16th of 2016. And the... So uh, how long long did you actually stop the flow of oil for? uh, It varied some from state to state, but it was about a business day. 
and and symbolic of uh, the need to shut down right. the, the flow of that oil and, and cut back our carbon emissions. Well, that's a few million barrels of oil. Uh, I mean, if you consider that through the Dakota Access Pipeline, they're flowing over 500,000 barrels a day. Uh, yes, it uh, was 15 percent of, of yeah. the American crude uh, used. So I'm, I'm confused. Why, why did it take them that long to reestablish it, to get it going again? Um. So um, they um, varied a little bit from state to state and from pipeline company to pipeline company, but they they inspected the the block valve sites that uh, we shut it down at and did some additional inspections of nearby block sites. Uh, They were uncertain uh, whether um, we were uh, just doing the action just in those five sites or if it was more broad spread broad spread and right. um, so they did some verification before they resumed the flow of the oil right and so this resulted in uh, I mean yeah, there was a symbolic element but of course it also resulted in actually stopping the flow of oil for uh, across five states for uh, an entire you know almost 24-hour period. That's a significant action, and the pipeline company, I imagine, regards that as a serious impairment and interruption of their service. And right now we see across the country there are are bills that attempt to criminalize protest, even if you aren't actually doing any damage to their equipment. And if you aren't – I mean, here in Iowa we have seen – uh, several instances where people went in and blew up or, or torched bulldozers and uh, took welding torches to uh, to valves to the valves, um, and you know those are already more serious crimes under current law. What the pipeline company here wants to do is to criminalize not even just what you did, but even potentially folks standing nonviolently in front of the entrance to a construction site, for example, and maybe slowing down the the uh, progress, so to speak, for a couple hours. So uh, it seems like, you know, maybe maybe some of these bills are in response to not just, uh, you know, the actual blowing or, or torching of bulldozers, but to, to the action that you took as well. Yeah, uh, yes, that's uh, one of the unique things about our action. Uh, we worked very hard to make sure that uh, there was no risk to property or person in the way that we took our action. Uh, we're very committed to peaceful nonviolence, um, yet at the same time, uh, a very um, forceful stand that we need to stop uh, the extreme emissions and, and growing amount each year. And um, and the five of us are um, either people of faith, like myself and a couple of the others, or um those with a very strong respect for how sacred life is and, right. and what a miracle life is. So what has happened in terms of your own court, uh, you know, court, the progress of the courts on this? So I was the third trial in Montana uh, last November, just before Thanksgiving Day, and um, I was not allowed the necessity defense um, beforehand. And in the trial, each time I mentioned the emergency that we're in, mentioned the words climate change, the prosecution would object and the judge would sustain that objection. And I was prevented from talking any further about the emergency. Um, I was um, held guilty um, in a verdict uh, delivered by the jury uh, of 
criminal trespass and felony criminal mischief. Um, the okay. threshold in Montana for a felony is $1,500. And even though the evidence presented was very weak, the jury did find that the damage was greater than $1,500. So you're appealing, correct? Yes. So you're still, uh, yeah, as, you're not in prison as, as of yet. No, and in, in fact, I went to my sentencing hearing just a uh, week ago uh, on the March 20th and uh, was fully expecting to be taken into custody uh, right then and there and taken to jail. Um, I assumed I was going to see at least 30 days and perhaps um, a couple of years of uh, what could have been a maximum of a 10-year sentence. And instead, the, the judge... Um, did a deferred sentence of three years and uh, probation. And so uh, with that sentence, if I don't break the law within the next three years, um, I can have the convictions removed from my record. Right. It was and, a surprise. I did, okay. did not expect to be free. And, and that's, that's mild considering, but some, some have it even milder than you. I mean, it looks like, uh, it looks like Ken Ward, from what I've been reading, was found justified because of the urgency of climate change. Is that am I reading that correctly? Um, well, that's what that's a result we're expecting in in Minnesota right. uh, with the defendants Emily and Annette there. Um, in Ken's case, the first trial he had two trials was a hung jury, even though they watched a video of Ken closing the valve, uh, cutting the chain with bolt cutters and, yes, and going I've, into the enclosure. I've seen that uh, video. They couldn't yeah. agree yeah. Yeah, that he was guilty. He had a second trial. Of, it was, again, a hung jury, hung jury on the more serious charge, but uh, they did convict him of the lesser charge of burglary. And so Ken was sentenced to community service and uh, just two days of jail time served. Hmm. And, wow. But, okay. But we are focused in, in Minnesota. The judge has uh, issued the first ever written ruling allowing the climate necessity defense. And now we have and that. Uh, now, now we have that being uh, presented in, in a court in Massachusetts as well. Um, yes, the Roxbury uh, West Roxbury thirteen. Um, right. the, the judge declared um, that. Um, he or she agreed um, with them that we are in a climate emergency and that their action is justified. And it seems like uh, the courts are being pulled in two very different directions. You have you have that situation where where the climate, the urgency of climate change has been recognized and uh, and uh, allowed to you know enter into the the uh, deliberations about the uh, the, uh, the the um, the accusations, and then you have legislators, legislatures around the country that are moving in the opposite direction, trying to further criminalize nonviolent protest. It's a, it's a fascinating um, just from a purely legal point of view. It's a fascinating. Uh, fascinating tension that exists right now. Yeah, it's it's very much a, a, a stand down between those that would continue the harm and continue to profit um, from the spot we're in and those that are standing on the side of life and our, our children's future. Well, I, uh, I commend you on your, your, your passion and your witness, uh, uh, Leonard. Uh, thanks for joining us. When we come back, we're going to talk to one of your colleagues, uh, Annette Klapstein. Who has uh, 
who um, it was uh, until like, maybe she still is practicing law, but she's been a lawyer in her life and uh, and decided that uh, this action was needed because of the urgency of the situation. So I look forward to talking with her as well. We'll also play a clip from a uh, statement by by uh, Al Gore's daughter regarding the action in Massachusetts against the uh, Kinder Morgan pipeline. So, again, thank you for joining us, uh, Leonard. Yes, thank you, Ed. We've been talking with Leonard Higgins, folks, uh, one of the five uh, valve turners, as they are known, who uh, stopped the flow of oil from the tar sands at five different locations back in October of 2016. We've got, uh, we might have a third uh, calling in, uh, Ken Ward, but I know we have Annette Klapstein on the phone with us. Annette, are you with us? Yes, I am. Hi, Annette. Hi. Thanks for joining us. So um, I, before we talk too much about your situation, which I guess is pretty similar to what we heard from Leonard, uh, you're familiar, I think, with what happened in uh, Massachusetts in the uh, district court last week with... Um, yes, yes. That was very exciting news, and we're very much hoping that the uh, Minnesota Court of Appeals is paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, if we can, we're going to try to play that clip from the... Um, from, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to try to try to cue it up, but uh, you probably have heard the statement by uh, Karina Gore, Al Gore's daughter, that I thought was pretty powerful. Uh huh. Yeah, we'll we'll try we'll, we'll try to cue that up and play it later. But um, but again, you um, you're a retired lawyer, I believe. I am. Yeah, yeah. I've been retired for over ten years now. So you weren't you weren't content just to go into retirement and, and enjoy the fruits of your labors and the grandkids and the and the granddaughters. <laughs> oh, definitely not. Yeah. So why? What what <laughs> what is too what, much to be done? Yeah, what you inspired know, you? Too much to be done. I mean, this is a huge um, risk when you when you go in and shut down the oil. That's a huge well, risk. It's yeah, it is a risk. Um, it's a risk I'm willing to take for all of our children. Um, we are at tremendous risk as really the human species at this point. Um, and I, you know, I'm almost 66 years old. I have had a good life, but I am very, very worried for the future. Right. And it's very clear to me that, you know, we have a very short window of time to attempt to turn climate change around. It's too late for good outcomes. We are down to bad and apocalyptic. Um, and so we, we, still we, have we, bad. we have to settle for bad. Wow. Okay. Yeah, we do. We yeah. do. We've got 40 years of, you know, um, it, it, there's about a 40-year delay. So we're actually, what we're experiencing right now, which is already clearly a crisis, um, we see that with the hurricanes. We see that here, here in the Pacific Northwest. You know, the wildfire season last year was beyond anything we've ever seen. Right. It was the first time I've ever seen smoke as a weather forecast day after day, ashes right. raining out of the sky. And I'm talking about in Seattle, not up in the hills. Right. Um, so it is already horrific. It's been horrific for frontline communities, especially, yeah. you know, indigenous communities, people in the Philippines, people in the parts of the world that have had the least benefit from the fossil fuel industry are the ones being hit her yeah. first, which is just so horrific and so heartbreaking. Yeah, and you would, you would um, hope we'd pay more attention to, to that. Uh, and maybe in the upper Midwest, people will pay attention. What's happening here now, maybe you know about this, is we have – unprecedented cold weather, not just a mm -hmm. day here and there. We have uh, just it, it constantly, it's not, there's no, it's not letting up. The average high is between 10 and 20 or even 25 degrees below normal. Right. Uh, yeah. And that's all part of this, you know, sure. breakdown of the climate system because we've also had in the Arctic 
temperatures well above freezing in January and February this year. It's, yeah, you know, well. the whole system is just breaking down. And, you know, pe- some people who think about it very simplistically think, oh, it's cold, therefore it can't be global warming. Yeah. Well, it's the planet is warming up overall. But what that means in terms of weather is it becomes much more erratic. Right. And, and we're seeing no that here. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know the east uh, east coast and the and the Midwest is experiencing much harsher winters. Um, we had seventy degrees here, um, you know, in the Seattle area in early March. So you you um, took you took a crash course on on uh, on the uh, how how uh, pipeline valves function last in, in twenty sixteen, <laughs> and went in and applied your skills uh, to uh, to one of these uh, valve sites. Yes, we did. We, uh, I went with Emily Johnston in uh, to shut down two Enbridge pipelines in Minnesota. Um, and in our case, we ended up actually not having to turn it off. Our, our goal in all cases was to get the uh, pipeline companies to shut it down remotely. Um, I don't believe that happened in all cases, but in our case, it, we, you know, there was a call made from Seattle 15 minutes in advance, and then there was a call made by our support person on site five minutes before we started to shut it down. And, you know, almost immediately after we had broke the chains and moved into the enclosure in the first area, we saw this giant, this thing that looked like a giant screw it was in a kind of a transparent case you know, going around and clearly going down. So we knew that the um, pipeline cut company was shutting it off. So wh- why would they shut it off uh, just because there was a threat of you doing it? What, what, um, what's, what, was the, what, was their, what was their advantage there? I don't get that. Well, it, in, they believe it's more safe for them to do it. And they knew, <laughs> I mean, we had said we're going to. Right, okay. So either you do it or we do it. All right. We're already here. And if you don't shut it off, we will. Right. So it was, you know, to their advantage at that point to go ahead and shut it down remotely. Um, that's the safest way to do it. Um, you know, our belief is that what we were doing was pretty safe um, as far as anything can be safe when you're talking about a pipeline right. company. sure, yeah. Um, because they don't maintain things very well. But these are the emergency shutoff valves. They so, are meant to be turned off in an emergency. And, you know, we feel like we are in a climate emergency. Right. And, you know, this is what we need to do is shut this down everywhere and keep it shut down. Let me, let me, uh, let me play a clip from uh, what Karina Gore had to say after okay. the uh, district court in Massachusetts ruled in favor of the uh, protesters who, who, um, who interrupted the, uh, the Kinder Morgan line. Uh, here we mm-hmm. go. Generations. What happened today was really important. We had a long and winding road, but essentially the people that put themselves in the way of building this fossil fuel pipeline were found not responsible by reason of necessity. And the irony of that is that we are making ourselves responsible. We are part of the movement that's standing up and saying we won't let this go by on our watch. We won't act like nothing's wrong. Uh, We're going to to be speaking up in new ways. We're going to be uh, demanding that the people who are in elected office and also the corporations uh, who are putting their cost, the cost of their doing business for their own profits, they are putting that cost on the public. They're putting that cost on future generations. And we are taking responsibility to say no to that. Um, so it's it's really a wonderful day. 
Yeah. So, uh, I mean, a pretty powerful statement and a pretty powerful action. Uh, it, okay. seems, it seems like more and more uh, courts are agreeing that there is justification in what you did because of the urgency of climate change. Is that how you read it? Um, yeah, it's be- I think it's beginning to move in that direction. That That's my sense. Um, it's just, you know, the courts are just beginning to recognize this. Um, it, it has been difficult to get this, um, obviously, to get the necessity defense. Uh, Ken was denied it. Leonard was denied it. Michael Foster was denied it in North Dakota and is now serving a year in prison. Um, but we were granted it in Minnesota. Um, our judge was the only one out of the five of us um, who held a hearing on it. Um, you know, we made the motion for the necessity defense. He asked for a hearing, and we all went and testified as to just exactly why we did this and what, you know, the science was and what our, you know, personal um, feeling on it was. And he took a, a couple months and decided that he would let us present the necessity defense to mm. the jury. Wow. Um that doesn't mean that we will, you know, necessarily not be convicted. And of course, right. um, you know, the prosecutor appealed that. But uh, it it seems to me that the judge in Minnesota, at least, you know, in our case, must have some sense of concern about what's going now, on with the climate to let us yeah. do this. Now, of course, the pushback is even as these uh, so some courts are ruling favorably toward what you did. Right. Uh, you've got uh, you've got pushback at the legislative level with the pi- pipeline companies and their allies trying to find, trying to create greater, you know, greater sentences, um, uh, well, yeah. tougher penalties for what you did, mm-hmm. and, e- and even even much level, much lower levels of, of activism. And you've also got a Trump administration that is remaking the shape of not just the, you know, the Supreme Court, but the but district court, appeal, you know, appellate courts uh, right. for decades to come. So, you know, it seems like eventually, I mean, it's hard to know how all this is going to play out. It could, could, could continue to bounce around, you know, very extreme um, rulings, uh, very, very different rulings from one place to another. But ultimately, this is going to take political reform. Uh, lawmakers at the state and federal level, um, administrative officials who are going – who get the urgency of the climate crisis and start start um, acting like it actually matters. And Right. You know, and I think the only way we get that is with the movement that we have because yes. we do not have a responsive political system. If we did, we wouldn't have done what we did. Yeah. But that's what we have to do because we have a completely unresponsive political system that does not work for actual human beings. It works for the corporations. It works for the capitalist system. It does not work for us. So one, one, more, um, one more question, and, Annette, before we run to a break mm-hmm. here. Um, what, 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 um, do you, I mean, again, you were effective at shutting down the flow of, what, 2 million barrels of oil? For almost a 24-hour uh, I think period, it was more than that. I don't remember the exact numbers, but overall, we set, shut down 15 percent of the total oil supply. Not not just the tar sands, the well, entire okay. total oil supply in the United States so that day. So, what's keeping more and, people? What do you think is keeping more people from doing the same thing that you just did? Um, there are definitely severe potential criminal penalties. So people, I think, are afraid of that. Mm -hmm. I say, particularly to my demographic, old white people, we're the ones who need to do this. Um, My young, you know, people of color, activist friends face much harsher consequences for doing anything than I do. So I really feel like both because the 
penalties are likely to be less for, you know, an old white lady. And also because I'm old and it doesn't matter to me anymore. You know, I, I mean, seriously, I've had my life. This is for my kids, for grandkids, for future generations. And people of my age should be thinking about giving back, not worrying about what's going to happen to them going to prison. We need we need to step up and do this because this is an absolute emergency. Well, Annette, I sure appreciate you joining us, uh, folks. We've been talking with Annette Klapstein, one of the uh, five uh, valve turners who... Uh, in a coordinated action in October of 2016, shut down the uh, flow of oil uh, from Canada through the U.S. And um, there, those those uh, actions continue to be heard out in the uh, in the uh, in the uh, court system. When we come back from a short break, and thanks for joining us, Annette. Um, uh-huh. When we come back from a short break, uh, we're going to talk with uh, Rick Smith. He's um, he writes for Iowa Starting Line. He's a member of the uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. He's very active politically. And wrote a compelling piece recently about uh, how the uh, Bering Sea um, ice melt shows, without a, without a doubt, that we need to take immediate action on climate change. We'll be back in a couple minutes, folks, on the Fallon Forum. The summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. It lingered there, touched your hair, and walked with me. All summer long we sang a song and strolled that golden sand Two sweethearts and the summer wind Like painted kites those days and nights went flying by The world was new beneath the blue umbrella sky then softer than a piper Back to the uh, Fallon Forum live streaming this, day, this, uh, this segment on Facebook, on the Fallon Forum Facebook page, if you're able to uh, do that and want to see how cute my guest looks. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Thank you. He's got, my, he's got my hairstyle. Rick Smith with us. Uh, Rick Smith is very active in uh, democratic politics, and uh, we're not really focused on that today. We're talking about climate change. He uh, recently wrote a very compelling piece um, that I think describes why we have this unprecedented cold front here in Des Moines, Iowa, Minnesota. They, the entire upper Midwest is just, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's been a gut punch of a march. And April's not much better. Uh, the first two days have been really cold and the forecast for the next week and a half, really cold. You're right. And and really what uh, prompted me to write this was I, I work closely with Citizens Climate Lobby. And so we follow, obviously, climate around the world. And we, we take a little bit different approach to this than maybe your former uh, uh, speaker talked about. We do take a political view that, that there is uh, a way to build consensus, both with Democrats and Republicans, and to get people to talk about climate. And so that's one of the reasons I wrote this article, because what's so unusual about this particular uh, climate event is not only the the really odd temperatures. Normally, this now think about this. This is the Arctic. It's total darkness. There's no sun shining. And yet we had temperatures 40 degrees above normal. I mean, and that was consistent. It wasn't just a, an odd day here and there. Well, actually, it, 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 it was fluctuating back and forth. But there were temperatures above freezing, which is almost unheard of. These were record-breaking temperatures. And so as a result, we had this massive sea ice melt. So... 
and it really is related to what you're talking about. It's this polar vortex where the jet stream just gets out of kilter and, and all the cold air gets sent down here and it right. gets warm up there. Well, because warm air expand, warm things expand. And so, exactly. boom, it's going to push that cold air somewhere. But what I think is the other really critical nature of this is if we, we've been following the climate models for years – uh, by the climatologists. And what's so unusual about this is the Arctic is warming much quicker than other parts of the world. So we've got global warming all over. You know, warmest temperatures will pass several years, record-setting warm temperatures. But then the Arctic, we're seeing this tremendous increase in uh, uh, temperatures there, more so than the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing ice melt. Now, we're not concerned about sea ice melt because that doesn't raise sea levels. Right. But we are concerned about land ice melting. So Greenland and Antarctica, where you've got all this massive, you've got a, foot, a mile and a half or so of uh, ice Almost on two Greenland. miles in some yeah. places, yeah. So that's, that's where you're seeing this incredible uh, quickening of the ice melt. And that's what's so concerning is – you know, the, the basic uh, climatologist models have been saying that we could expect uh, a one to two foot sea rise at, by 2100. Now they're saying at this rate, think about more six to 10 feet. Now think about that, mm-hmm. six to 10 feet in sea rise by 2100. What you're talking about is a great deal of the world, you know, the, the mass population mm-hmm. lives on the coast. Yeah. So we're talking about mass migration, mass dislocation, and, and really it's it's a national no. security issue for the world. Well, it's hard to know all the ramifications of climate change. And here's, I mean, we're experiencing one right now. I mean, we've seen uh, oftentimes by this point, this point of the year, we have flowers blooming on trees. We've even had Sorry. lilacs blooming yep. by late March in, in one year, not too long ago. And now nothing – there's very – I saw my first daffodil yesterday, yeah. but very little is wanting to show its face in the uh, – I mean, we have, we, have, we have cold temperatures at night that are 20. It's supposed to get out to 16 in a couple of days. That's, that's – um, again, that happens once in a while, but not day after day after day after day. Right. You know? So uh, let, let me ask you, Rick. I mean, the, the previous guests were um, – they were focused on direct action, stopping right. oil from flowing through the pipeline. You're focused on political reform. Exactly. And um, how do we uh, – how, how do we get poli- – how do we get our politicians to start paying attention? And it's not just um, – I know that Democrats tend to be better on this than Republicans, but even under the Obama administration, we didn't see anything resembling urgency when it came to climate. Well, I would disagree with you on that. I think the Paris Accords were significant, uh, you know, focus on that. And I thank President Obama for bringing China and India into it. So I think we did make a great uh, accomplishment. But here, here's what we've really accomplished locally. So we've got almost every Democratic go- uh, candidate now for governor and Congress talking about climate and we go and, and we hold up climate science and ask them to talk about climate when we meet with them. And so they are responding. Now, those are Democratic no, candidates. I know a lot of them are responding, but just like they'll throw the word climate out there, they'll move on to something else. Well, they, they are responding with urgency. I, I do think, you know, this is partly an education uh, for all of our, our, uh, our candidates that we need to make this a priority issue for them. And, it, and that's the first step, at least to get them to acknowledge it and talk about it. So that's really where we've been spending our time. The other issue, of course, has been uh, we, we meet with uh, our Republican legislators 
um, U.S., that is, uh, twice a year. So we meet with Congressman Young at least twice a year. I'm the liaison for Young. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that is simply education. Again, just to keep hammering away, this is real. This is a concern. This should be a priority for you. And we are making some headway. With- last time I talked with Congressman Young, he said, well, I have different uh, different, different um, sources that I cite for evidence as to why climate change may not be man-made. And when I kept pushing him over time to, you know, show me those resources, he could never produce them. So maybe you've yeah. had better luck with them than I did. Well, I think I think part of it is we've brought in uh, climate scientists from Iowa State. So Gene Talkley, for instance, from Iowa State, met with uh, uh, Congressman Young. And obviously when you can bring an expert in, I'm not an expert. I'm, I'm a lay person. But when you can bring an expert in from, from Iowa universities and put an Iowa spin on this, at least it gets their attention. We did the same thing with uh, with Senator Ernst. And at least they will acknowledge, well, you know, wait a minute. And they – and. The, the real interesting part of this is, and Young admitted this, Gene Talkley about the, talked about the fact we're having to raise bridges in Iowa because of the flood danger created from climate change. Right. And Young says, I had no idea. I mean, I think that was a wake-up call, yeah. uh, I hope. I mean, yeah. maybe I'm being too optimistic. Yeah. But that's the, uh, that's the tack we're taking is just keep pounding and hammering away. Well, and a big part of the problem, I mean, it's good that you and others, all of us, continue to pound away. But on the other hand, you've got – You've got big interests with a lot of money, right? A lot of oil interests, yes. You know, Koch brothers and, yep. and whatnot. That they don't have to pound very hard; they just have true. to write a check. True, and that's uh, true. And then they get lawmakers to somehow agree that climate change is not that big a deal. Yeah. So no, you're right. It's you're a challenge. Yeah, it is a challenge. Yeah. And that's why we have to keep keep working at it. Yeah. Well, Rick, I really appreciate your uh, your your effort, efforts on this. I Thank you. I very much admire our citizens' climate lobby. Uh, I'm the I'm a guy who believes that all. Tactics are necessary, whether it's direct action, lobbying, political political change. Every, we have to do everything everything possible at this point to raise awareness about the urgency of, of climate change. And we've got to do um, we've got to have the same urgency when it comes to uh, gun violence and a lot of other of the really high priority issues. And I'm really delighted that our next guests are going to be uh, students from uh, Des Moines who are going to talk about their reasons for getting involved. In the uh, March for Our Lives campaign, the country has been riveted for the past month or more on the horrific shooting in Parkland, Florida. I I went to uh, the school in Parkland when the teachers returned, and uh, it was very encouraging to see such a strong, vocal, and and an articulate response, and to see that continue. Uh, And it is continuing all over the country. Uh, Here in Des Moines, we have students who have been speaking out, uh, again, without... uh, uh, as far as I can tell, without any fear of retribution, they're, they're, they refuse to be silenced. You know, even, even as I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the studio this morning and I'm listening to the large commercial radio station owned and operated by the far right, <laughs> and their whole tack is there's no reason anybody shouldn't be able to own any gun they want. Um, that is, I believe, becoming a minority opinion, that more and more people are understanding we've got to do something. And I'm really, really encouraged that the leading voices in this movement are, are young people. And with me in the studio, uh, two young women, both named Isabella. <laughs> Isabella, o- <clears throat> excuse me, Isabella O'Connor and... Isabella Gallegos. Gallegos, Gallegos, great. Well, great to have you in the studio. And you were both involved with the, um, the, uh, the March for Our Lives here in Des Moines. Yeah, I was a part of the one of the student planners here. Okay, yeah, lean right into that microphone. This is a we don't normally have three people on the set here, but we're going to make it happen here. So tell us more about your involvement with that, Isabella. Well, I saw um, the Facebook event. It was created by Progress Iowa, and 
I, there was like an email to volunteer if you wanted to get involved. Or there was a, like, yeah. And so I emailed them, and I was just like, hey, my name's Isabella O'Connor. Um, I'm a junior in high school. I'd really like to get involved. So I started going to the meetings and getting more closely involved with planning the actual march, and I actually ended up being a speaker. And so we've kind of just um, also done more. I've planned, helped plan some of the walkouts at schools. We're planning a big walkout <coughs> on April 20th, and then we're going to have a rally at the Capitol right afterwards. We've also planned sign-ins um, where we had two huge banners. One was addressed to the Parkland students, and the other was addressed to the Iowa legislator. The Parkland students, one was just like, we're with you, we stand with you, we're praying for you, we are sending our thoughts. And the one that I was legislator was a call for action, and we had students and teachers sign it. So, Isabella, um, what, what's, uh, tell us more about what's planned for April 20th. Uh, yeah, yeah. Gallegos, yeah. <laughs> we'll bring you into this. Um, so at my school, I am planning <clears throat> an event on April 20th to, celebrate, or to uh, recognize um, the anniversary of Columbine. And so I live in a more rural area, and so we want to have— Where are you from? Grinnell. Grinnell, okay. Yes, and so we want to have um, all students feel like they can get— uh, um, politically active and involved. And so we were having um, Senator Allen from Newton and Representative Maxwell, who represents Grinnell, and we are having them come in and talk about how students can be more politically engaged and how to make positive change. And then from then, we are going to um, register voters and have some s- sort of political statement that mm-hmm. we do as a school. So uh, among young people, there seems to be almost almost unanimous agreement that that the uh, most dangerous assault weapons um, should not be uh, available, that, uh, that uh, there should be more attention paid to uh, background checks, um, bump stocks, and anything that uh, beefs up the capacity of a gun should be outlawed. Uh, do you have, are there many students in your, in your schools that would disagree? Are there, is, there, is, there, is there an opposition voice among young people on this issue? Um, especially at my school, yes, there is. Um, there was <clears throat> an email chain that went out to my school um, talking about planning some of these events, and there were hundreds of emails that got sent in response about how um, guns are not the issue and that um, this is a pointless um, conversation to be having, uh, which is really unfortunate because there's a lot of common ground that you, we find um, in on both sides that we can use to um, make change. And so it's unfortunate that people haven't realized that they have that common ground. So well, what percentage of your student body would be on the other side of this issue who don't feel we need to, have to take some dramatic steps? Probably about half. Okay. And what, what about in your case? Um, um, I'm from Des Moines, so urban, pretty <clears throat> liberal area. So I'd probably say definitely less than half. I'd say even around 35%, at least at my school. Would be in disagreement with you? No, would yeah, would be in disagreement yeah, with so me. I'd say the majority of students um, at my school would call for gun control. Yeah. Okay, so again, um, there's uh, there have been instances where across the country, in a coordinated way, students have walked out, and is that is that, is that partly what's planned on April 20th, or is this uh, specific to your school? Uh, no, there's a Central Iowa. We have a Twitter page actually. It's at IA Students Unite, and so we recommend everyone following it. Um, it depends on your school because all schools have a different really plan, but. Most schools are walking out at 10 a.m. with the rest of the nation in the national school walkout. And then personally at my school, we're going to do 17 seconds of silence for each victim. We're going to read the names. And then afterwards, we're going to try and all figure out a way to carpool to the Iowa Capitol, to the Iowa State Capitol. And from there, we're going to have speakers. 
um, poets. We're going to have musical performances, and we're going to invite every single legislator and really put pressure on them to show up and listen to the youth. So nationally, uh, Isabella, what what's the next step? Uh, I mean, we saw a tremendous coming together uh, on March 24th for the March for Our Lives. Um, this is one step. Uh, it's more local, but is there any kind of a national focus on on some 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 big next steps? Well, we really need to focus on getting our legislators to hear our voices and to realize that we have valid opinions. Just and not, just because we are young, does not mean that we are not capable of um, having complex thoughts and being able to um, want to enact change. And so just getting our legislators to hear us and to and by demanding action, hopefully we'll we'll start seeing some change. And the Parkland students have set it up so um, other students of gun violence can be heard as well, like students in inner city who are facing inner city gun violence, they can be heard as well. And so um, one of the things that they're having is they're doing a call on Congress people to uh, hold town halls in their areas, and they're being really successful at that. Mm. We're trying to plan a few in Iowa because the there's a break from the session. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that seems to be very important is, uh, you know, back to the issue of division within the school, you know, your school much less so than yours, mm-hmm. but to um, <clears throat> begin to find ways of creating that dialogue that can bring more people together on what some of the common sense solutions might be. Uh, beyond that, it, it seems to me that the very... Um, the, uh, the 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 school walkout is very powerful. What if that evolved into an actual strike? Uh, I mean, historically, strikes for labor unions or even like when India was uh, trying to free itself from British rule, you know, a, a big strike where everybody's focused and it's not just an hour or a day, it's extended. I mean, what if students were to walk out and say, we're not coming back until Congress addresses this issue? Has that ever, has that been discussed? And what do you think of that idea? That hasn't been discussed no. among me or among my friends or anything, but I think that's a really good <clears> idea <throat> because it would force them to take action in the ways that students want them to. What do you think, Isabella? I think that as long as um, students' education isn't being harmed as a result of that, that it could be a really good way to get students or, or get legislators to hear our hmm. voices. And maybe uh, concurrently people in other professions, talk show hosts, for example, would walk out and refuse to do their jobs until something is done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, it's, uh, it, it's an idea that I, I've kicked around a bit. I wondered how much serious traction it was getting. Anyway, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, Isabella O'Connor mm-hmm. and Isabella Gallegas. Mm-hmm. You got it right? All right. Both uh, pages at the Iowa Senate, both uh, students at uh, Iowa high schools and both very vocal about the need for some serious uh, conversation and some serious legislation relevant to uh, gun violence. Again, thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. If you're listening on our community station, stick around. We've got a little more conversation coming your way. Otherwise, again, check out the conversation live every Monday at 11 o'clock here on 96.5 FM, 1260 AM, La Reina, broadcasting uh, from Des Moines, Iowa. Yeah, I, I understand the need for, even though I love getting around by bike or by foot when I can, which is most of the time, I understand the importance of a vehicle to get you from point A to point B. Um, and I, what, I, what I don't understand is 
the obsession with larger vehicles that that um, don't get good gas mileage. I don't get that. And I'm delighted. You know, I, I've had, I had plenty of complaints about the Obama administration's response to the climate crisis, but I was pleased that they... Uh, they required they they re, they required that new vehicles would need to get 36 miles per gallon by 2025. That's a that's a great start. I, I mean, given the urgency of climate change, even that is embarrassingly a small step, and and, and slow, but it's something, and it says something about the contrast in perspective of the current administration and the previous one that the President Trump is expected to, and this may have happened before you, by the time you hear this program, this may have happened because we're broadcasting on Monday. There is talk about this decision happening on Tuesday. But Trump is expected to propose rolling back gas mileage and pollution standards to pre-Obama level, levels. And of course, yeah, some of the big car companies are delighted about that. Uh, the um, <laughs> the word on the street is that this announcement is going to occur at a Virginia car dealership. We'll see what actually happens. So, um, other than the the setback to our efforts to reduce fossil fuel emissions, uh, this is um, going to result in a huge legal showdown with California. You know, California was given a waiver. Uh, that allowed them to set uh, their own rules on emissions, on, 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 yeah, on mileage. And um, <laughs> what happened was uh, a whole bunch of other states followed California's lead. In fact, about one-third of all the vehicles sold in the U.S. now operate by the California standard. And again, right now that's not a big deal because the California standard is consistent with the Obama standard, but if um, if Trump gets his way, and again, there's really very little that can stop him from doing this, and he rolls back the the uh, mileage standards, then the question is, what will happen with California? I mean, California has that waiver; they have the power to continue to require vehicles to to um, you know to come in at that 36 mile per gallon threshold. And the, um, the other states that are following their California's lead continue to do that, even though Trump is taking this action. I guess the big question is, will the waiver granted to California be, will there be an attempt to revoke that? And I don't quite understand what's involved in terms of um, trying to take away California's right to do that. That may be simply a decision that, the, uh, that Scott Pruitt and the EPA have the right to make. Uh, they may simply be able to revoke that waiver. And uh, if Trump is serious about this initiative, then that's probably what will happen. Although I, I imagine that if it does happen, there will be legal challenges and probably nothing will change. And, can, and California and the other states will continue to be able to do that. So, of course, you know, it, it always boggles my mind that... Um, that industry resists change by it looks through the lens of the past or even the present and bases its opposition to progress on that not not looking forward 
And again, this is a this is a really prime example of why it needs to look forward. You know, industry is industry argues the 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 um the automakers they they argue that um they'll have trouble getting to that 36 mile per gallon threshold because people are buying bigger vehicles. Well, okay, stop making bigger vehicles and people will stop buying them. <laughs> I, I don't know how hard that is. Okay, the automa automakers also say that the, the standard, the uh, 36 mile per gallon standard, will cost the industry billions of dollars and raise vehicle prices because the technology is not there. Well, I mean, the technology is there. How can they say that? The technology is clearly there. Look at all the automakers who are manufacturing cars that get they get great mileage or even don't get any mileage at all because they're they run they they're run by electricity. You know, there are some speculating that not too far in the future, regardless of whether you even factor in climate change, regardless of that, in the near future electrically powered vehicles are going to be are going to be the what's what's most common and and eventually vehicles you know powered by fossil fuels are going to be phased out and, and not for any reason that has to do with concern for the environment or the planet or the survival of our species but has to do with cost it's going to be more cost effective to power vehicles electrically uh, and, and that's so for them to say for the automakers to say we don't have the technology is extremely disingenuous. It's not true. You know, uh, the bottom line is. If we require all vehicles to be at least 36 miles per gallon by 2025, and ideally, if we get even more aggressive, that's going to save people a lot of money in terms of their fuel costs. And again, if you can't if you can't convince people to do something because it's the right thing to do morally, socially, environmentally, then at least we can try to convince them that it's the right thing to do because it saves them money. So we'll see where this goes. But um, again, by the time you're listening to this program, P President Trump may have indeed already made the announcement about about um, about fuel standards. We'll see. And we'll see what happens with Scott Pruitt and the EPA again. It's not surprising to see Pruitt want to take away California's waiver. The current administration really dislikes California. <laughs> and uh, Pruitt himself, of course, is a climate denier, even doubting the climate scientists within his own agency regarding global warming. So we'll see where this goes, but the, um, the, uh, the die has been thrown and the uh, challenge is there. We'll, we'll, we'll stay tuned to find out what happens next. That's my style Howdy do me Just watch me smile Fare thee you know, well As a young adult, there were two places in Europe I wanted to visit more than anywhere else, and that was Greece and Switzerland. Now, I've still not made it to Greece, and it took me a long time to get to Switzerland. I didn't get to Switzerland until I was almost 40. And I am... Um, I was so impressed. I spent um, I spent about uh, let's see four days in Zurich, and I was delighted to see that last last week that uh, U.S. News and World Report named Switzerland the world's best nation <laughs> um, for the second year in a row. 
And um, three of uh, Switzerland's largest cities rank in the top 10 places to live. And again, Zurich is one of them. And the reasons cited here all resonate. I, I mean, I was, I was, they talk about um, the importance of public transportation. And I, uh, I, I remember um, staying, staying with my hosts. We, would, we walked, I don't know, a minute, two minutes at the most, to a street where we, uh, we waited for less than five minutes. The buses were running all the time. We hopped on a bus and went down to a farmer's market, um, maybe a 10-minute ride, 15-minute ride, loaded up, and took the bus back again. I mean, very little, there were very, very little, very short distances to walk, which is good because we had a lot of vegetables and stuff we bought. Um, also, one thing that wasn't, wasn't mentioned in the, re, in the uh, analysis that I saw, I remember being able to step out the door of my, my friend's apartment in the heart of Zurich, and within no time at all, I was able to walk out into the countryside. There were farms, there were mountains, uh, you know, and, and you can't do that if you've got a sprawling community that goes on for 10, 20 miles or more, you know. So what they've got going for them in Switzerland is something that we might want to consider, you know, modeling here in the U.S. And yeah, they got mountains in some parts of the country, Iowa, for example. We can't, we can't uh, come up with mountains. What we do have instead of mountains are beautiful cumulus clouds in the summertime, which I think are just as beautiful as a mountain. But we do have what we could do is be better organized. I mean, everything works on works on schedule in Switzerland. Trains run on time. Uh, we have people are paid better wages. The average salary runs from a hundred grand to one hundred eight thousand a year. That's amazing, and they have low income tax rates. You know, they have a great healthcare system. Um, they spend a high percentage of uh, their GDP on education, on research and infrastructure. Of course, when you're spending lots of your uh, your um, your tax revenue on the military and on uh, on the corporate giveaways. You're not going to have money for those things. So we've got a long ways to go in the U.S., but hey, let's take a page from the Swiss and um, maybe try to let that influence some of our policymaking decisions going forward. Uh, again, thanks for tuning in to today's forum, folks. This is Ed Fallon, your host, broadcasting live from Des Moines, Iowa, the Fallon Forum on Lorena, 1260 AM, 96.5 FM. I'm not the guy who cared about love. I'm not the guy who cared about fortunes and such. Never cared much. Oh, look at me now. I never knew the technique of kissing I never knew the thrill I could get from your touch I never cared much, oh, look at me now I'm a new man, better than Casanova at his best With a new heart and a brand new start I'm so proud I'm busting my vest